You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. I want to look at that passage in Matthew chapter 28. It's the commission. It's Jesus' direction to his 11 core disciples before he goes back to heaven. It's on what are you to do 2,000 years ago. This is standing orders to the church down through the ages. It's Jesus' direction to us here this morning. Here is your core mission, the church on mission. This morning we begin a a little series over the next month on the New Testament church today, on its leadership, on membership, on generosity, on commitment, on participation. And one of the key takeaways from the New Testament is this, that we are the church. You and me, all of us together, each person who has received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and has joined in a fellowship of local Christians, we are the church. Now, you would say, of course, that's kind of motherhood and apple pie. But unfortunately, it's not. For a number of reasons in our society, church can be perceived as a consumer item. It's a service to receive. It's a product to consume. There's even this perception of the church today as kind of a spiritual big box store. Or other times I have heard the language, I guess I'm guilty, other times I have used this language. I have said, why doesn't the church do something about it? As if the church were out there, some government-funded organization adding to the deficit. So when we hear the statement, together we're the church, it's actually a mind shift. The church is not just what we receive, but what we contribute. The church is not just what others do for us, it's what we do for others. It's a for each other community. Precisely the church in the New Testament is a one another community. We are a community of faith, a family, of Christian believers, a fellowship where participation is needed. Together, and only together, can the mission be accomplished. Together, much more can be done than any one of us can do individually. Remember that statement, we are the church. Unleash your kingdom power, reaching the near and far. No force of hell can stop your beauty, changing hearts. You made us for much more than this, Awake your kingdom seed in us. Fill us with the strength and love of Christ. We are the church. And this morning I want to look at the topic of the church on mission. So let's look together at those key verses which were read to us, the Great Commission. They're on the screen there. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And let me read the core verses again. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Peter Greer and Chris Hurst, in a rather eye-opening book, which caused a bit of a stir a few years ago in Christian circles, the book was entitled Mission Drift, They document the reality that many times churches and ministries over time drift from their original mission. They drift from what it was they intended to do. 
For example, the church may start strong with a desire to accomplish the Great Commission, to fulfill what Christ told them to do. Originally, they're making new Christians, they're growing in the faith, they're encouraging people, they're serving their communities. But years later, they're just a shell of what they used to be. No new believers, no community impact, outreach reduced to bingo nights on Friday, and survival has become the new mission. Mission Drift tells a story of Harvard University, founded originally as a Christian school. The motto of the school when it was founded was, and I won't say it in Latin, it was truth for Christ and church. Today, the motto of Harvard has been reduced to just one word, veritas, truth. Christ and church are gone. Perhaps truth will be gone tomorrow. They also tell the story of the YMCA, and I won't do the little dance for you in the YMCA. Um, the Young Men's Christian Association, that's what that stands for. YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. It was founded in 1844 for evangelism, Bible study, and physical fitness. Today, only the physical fitness remains, and in the year 2000, the MCA got pulled off. It is now called the Y. Greer and Hurst say this, the natural course, the unfortunate natural evolution of many originally Christ-centered missions is to drift. The natural course is to drift. So the question we need to ask this morning is this, how as a church do we get on mission? And how as a church do we stay on mission? And in the great commission from Jesus, we are given some very clear directions. Look again at Matthew, 18, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The source of our mission is the full authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified, the one that death could not hold, the one who has been raised from the dead, the living, all-sufficient Lord Jesus. The New Testament message, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. The church on mission continuously acknowledges the powerful, everlasting authority of Jesus, the uniqueness of his person, the Son of God. The message of his cross and the resurrection is the core message of Christianity. It always has been, and it always will be. We listen to his words, we honor his authority, for he is our Savior and Lord. Here's the first thing I want to say this morning. To stay on mission, we need to keep Christ first and foremost. If Christ is the center of our gathering, our mission is clear. In humble worship, we bow before his authority. This is how we start on mission this is how we stay on mission. Now let's continue, Matthew 28, verse 19, which speaks to the question, what is our mission? The mission we start on, the mission we stay on. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here's the big message. And I guess if you have to go home, you could go home after I give you the big message. 
Here it is. A church on mission makes disciples. A church on mission baptizes disciples. A church on mission teaches disciples. Did you get that? A church on mission makes disciples, says Jesus, baptizes disciples, teaches disciples. The core of the Christian message is that. That is the church on mission. It's that simple. And it's that difficult. Now, let's unravel it a little bit just in case you don't have to go home and we'll look at it in a little bit of detail. Let's look at the first. A church on mission makes disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, says Jesus. What an extraordinary commission to 11 very ordinary men. Fishermen, four of them are fishermen. James and John, Peter and Andrew. There was a tax collector, love those tax collectors. Matthew, there was a doubter, Thomas, a man I can identify with. There had been 12 of them, but one was Judas. And now there were 11 on a mountainside, on a hillside in Galilee. And what a command they're given that as growing, struggling disciples trying to figure it all out, they were been sent to make more disciples. Disciples making disciples. That was their mission. Look at the scope of it. They were to make disciples of all nations. And the word there actually means all tribes, all people, all nation groups, all cultures. From an obscure little province of Galilee at the edge of the empire, they are commissioned to go to the whole world. Luke further records this commission in the book of Acts, chapter 1, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke again records in his gospel, Jesus saying that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Mark affirms the commission in his gospel where Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, or another version says, to every creature, to every person. This is the great commission. Clear in its goal, make disciples. Bold and universal in its scope, all nations. This is the final command that Jesus gives to his 11 disciples. But... It is also the primary mission that Jesus gives to you and to me, to everyone who is a disciple of Christ. It's a command to the church all through history, a command for us this morning here at Citizens Church. Here's the big point. A church on mission makes disciples. Now, someone might ask the question, what do you mean by the word disciple? Is a disciple some special kind of follower of Jesus, a special kind of breed? Go and make disciples. In the New Testament, various words are used to describe those who follow Jesus, those who receive him as their savior. For example, sometimes the followers of Jesus are called believers. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter is it's recording Peter's speaking after the day of Pentecost and many people becoming uh, followers. It says this, and more than ever, believers, there's that word for those who follow Jesus, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Other places, sometimes uh, believers or followers of Jesus are called Christians. They were actually first 
appeared to be called Christians by outsiders in the community in the city of Antioch. We're not sure whether it was a description or a term of derision, but wherever it was, the term stuck. Acts 11:26, and in Antioch, that Syrian city, the disciples were first called Christians. Disciples, believers, Christians, are all synonyms for followers of Jesus. Christian literally means Christ's one. It says something about our identification, our ownership. Believer emphasizes faith, the message of salvation we depend on. Disciple emphasizes trust and relationship, placing ourselves under the guidance and authority and lordship of a master. In Jewish culture, there were rabbis and students, teachers and pupils. A disciple of Jesus is one who hears his word and obeys it. Believer, Christian, disciples, those are interchangeable terms with just a little different emphasis. Disciple is not a special category. All who trust Jesus as their savior are disciples. Jesus declares, go and make disciples of all nations. That means to call all people to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ no matter what their racial background, no matter their cultural background, to spread the news of the gospel to all. It means to preach the uniqueness of Christ, his life-changing cross, his transforming resurrection. It means to call men and women to acknowledge his lordship and to follow his ways and to be disciples who make disciples. And if we are to be a disciple who disciples others, we first must be a disciple ourselves. So I want to ask you a personal question this morning. Don't be offended. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Has there been a time when you placed your faith in him as your Savior and Lord? The wonderful message of Christ is for all, and all includes me, and it includes you. I love the summary of the gospel. You've heard me quote it many times from theologian Tim Keller, where he says, that even though I am more sinful in myself than I ever dared to admit, in Christ I am more loved and forgiven than I ever dared to imagine. Isn't that good? Summary of the gospel. That even though in myself I'm more sinful than I ever dared to admit, in Christ and through his cross I am more loved and forgiven than I ever dared to imagine. This is the core of the gospel message. Have you received it? Are you a disciple? If you have done that, you now are given a mission. We are to be disciples who make disciples. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing. Jesus' command to his 11 original disciples was go, make more disciples. And his instruction remains the same. It's clear to us. Go and make disciples. A church on mission makes disciples. Disciples, making disciples, this is the mission. Now, sometimes stories, particularly stories rich in imagination, can drive through a truth in a powerful way. And, and just to be clear, the story I'm about to tell is a story. It is sanctified imagination, but it's good. A storyteller once imagined what it must have been like in heaven when Jesus returned. After the cross, after his ascension, after the resurrection, 
What, is, what celebration there must have been. It all was over. He was able to come back home again. And the, there must have been singing and joy. And, but then in the midst of all the rejoicing, suddenly an angel steps forward and asks this stunning question. And suddenly everything goes dead silent. The angel said, Lord, what plan do you have to continue the work you began on earth? And without hesitation, Jesus replied, I left it in the hands of the 11 disciples. There was a pause and the silence became even greater, if silence could become greater. And the angel asked, what if they fail? What if those 11 fail? And suddenly all of heaven leaned in to listen and the Lord replied, I have no other plan. What if they fail? I have no other plan. And history tells us that those 11 disciples took the message of Jesus far and near. An absolutely incredible accomplishment from Galilee to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem and the communities around, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the empire, to Rome. History tells us that John and Philip went to Asia Minor, what today is Turkey. Matthew went to North Africa. Peter went to Rome. 2,300 kilometers from Galilee, in the minds of a first century individual, the ends of the earth. There's even a strong tradition that the Apostle Thomas perhaps went to India. The Church of Mar Thomas in South India claims his name. And then there were thousands of nameless disciples who spread the message throughout the first century as they were persecuted, as they had to move, they would tell about Jesus as they went. From the beginnings of the church of just a few hundred believers, they increased at least 400 times in 30 years. By the end of the first century, there were 500,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. The 11 disciples took the Great Commission seriously go and make disciples of all nations. Historian Kenneth Latourette says this, never in the history of humanity has this record ever quite been equaled. No religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of <clears throat> physical force or cultural prestige, has achieved so much in so short a time. Robert Coleman, in his book, The Master's Plan of Discipleship, says this, in the sense of making known the gospel to all nations, certainly the apostolic church took the Great Commission seriously and actually succeeded in penetrating vast segments of the habitable world with the claims of the kingdom. What an encouragement to us as Christians today. In the face of great difficulty, hardship, persecution, of those disciples, there was only one who died a natural death, the Apostle John, and he died in exile. The rest all were martyred for their faith. And yet they took the gospel to the world. You know, yes, there are difficulties in our country today, and if I was to ask people here to stand up, you could all begin telling me different difficulties with the faith today. There's secularism, there's apathy, there's postmodern skepticism, but... There is also great opportunity. People are looking for meaning, for something more, searching for something that will satisfy. There's opportunities. The nations of the world are coming to us. Russell Wolfe, who is uh, um, involved in missions, the director of serving and mission here in Canada, recently was quoted as saying this, 
I think for the Canadian church, the face of global mission has changed by the fact that God continues to bring the mission field right here to our own backyard. May the Lord open our eyes to the opportunity. May the Lord open our hearts with compassion and love. The church on mission makes disciples. Now, since I don't want to keep you here to two this afternoon, let me get to point two. (laughs) Return with me to the text. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second. Not only does a church on mission make disciples, a church on mission baptizes disciples. Baptism was the sign that marked a New Testament Christian. It's the normative practice in the New Testament story that when an adult disciple believed, they were baptized. Listen to the message of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. What did they do? Acts 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And that story is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament with no exception. But let me use one more example. It's from Acts chapter 8. It's the story of evangelist Philip who meets up in a spectacular way with this man who's an Ethiopian, the treasurer of Queen Candace's court, and meets up in this chariot. It tells him a story about Jesus. The Ethiopian official believes that Jesus is the Savior. What's his response? Acts 8, verse 36, the Ethiopian says, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and he baptized him. Believe in Jesus and be baptized. A church on mission baptizes disciples. Now the question is, why is baptism emphasized in the New Testament? And the other question is, does this still apply to us today? The fact of the matter is, you cannot see my heart. You don't actually know what I believe. You don't even know for sure what's really important to me. But, because those things are invisible. But baptism is visible, it's dramatic, it's impossible to hide. You can't see what's important to me, but you can see my baptism. You can't see what I believe, but you can see my baptism. You can't see my heart, but you can see my baptism. A little while ago, um, our little granddaughter, Evangeline, I told her she's in the sermon today. (laughs) Um, Used to be my kids, now it's my grandkids. We were sitting on the couch and little Evangeline was beside me and she started fiddling around with my hand and she found my ring and she said, Papa, what's that? And I said to her, I said, uh, Sharon was on the other side, I said, "Um, check out Nana's left hand and her fourth finger and sure enough, she looks and she says, Nana's got one of them too. Hers looks a little nicer than mine, mine's kind of tarnished, hers has got some diamonds. And we shared our story, um, how 40 years ago, yeah, I'm that old, 40 years ago, we actually, and we took it off and we demonstrated it, right? So I took my ring off and I gave it to Sharon and she kind of worked hers off. They're hard to get off. And she put the ring on my finger and I put it in her finger. And Evangeline was was frozen. She She was 
frozen. I shouldn't say that. She was, because she's into that too. She was spellbound. <laughs> she was spellbound. And, and we told her it means that we're married. We've made a commitment to each other, right? We did it 40 years ago. This is the sign of it. The rings tell a story. But you know, the ring has no power in and of itself. I'm about to take the ring off. It's off. I'm still married. I'm still married. But this ring tells you that it's for real. You know, um, I was going to say none of you were there the day we were married. And then we have baby blessing today, and my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, they were there, and my mother-in-law, and they were there. But I don't think any of the rest of you were there. But it really happened. But the ring is a little reminder that it's for real. Someone has described it, a theologian described it like this, baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Baptism is an outward and visible sign that I have confessed my faith in Christ and I identify with him. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of what Christ has done for me. I have died with him to my sin. I have been cleansed as we are cleansed through water. And I have been risen again to a new life as I emerge from the water. What a picture of our faith. Death, burial, resurrection, forgiveness, cleansing, renewal. And yes, it still applies for every Christian. It has not been rescinded. The privilege and responsibility of baptism has never been repealed. So you may ask, why would a Christian not be baptized? Well, perhaps sometimes it's because I miss the importance of it. It seems like an option. Or perhaps it's because I'm a bit of an introvert and I really hate being in the spotlight. Stepping out is never easy, but I believe it is a gift for you as well, introvert or extrovert an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. A church on missions challenges full commitment. In a society like ours, I want to say this plainly, in a society like ours, a half-hearted faith is a very weak foundation. If there ever was time for all-in Christian disciples it's now. A church on mission baptizes disciples. Let's look at the text again there. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. There's the third thing about a church on mission. A church on mission teaches disciples. Now birth may come in a moment, but growth takes a lifetime. There's great celebration when a new baby arrives, and, and we joined together in that celebration of new life this morning, didn't we? But as all of us soon come to learn, raising a child takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of patience, and a lot of teaching. And as we know, it actually takes this extended team of people to help us with all of that, and some of you here this morning, quite a few of you, are members of that team as it is with natural birth, so it is with spiritual birth. Just like a baby's birth happens in a very short period of time, it doesn't seem that way when a mother is in labor, but it's a short period of time. So a spiritual birth often happens in a moment. 
But I thought there's even an illustration with the pregnancy, isn't it? There's nine months of development before that birth. And often in our faith journey, it takes a while for us to come to a place where we make that decision. It takes a moment to decide for Christ. It takes a lifetime to live for Christ. To bring a, to bring a child from infancy to maturity takes time, and it takes more than time. It takes guidance, it takes instruction, it takes teaching. To take a Christian from that moment of first belief to a place of maturity takes time. But it takes more than time. It takes instruction. It takes guidance. It takes teaching. Jesus said, teach disciples to observe all I have commanded. Teach them to put their faith into action. Not only to know it in their heads, but to observe it. That is, to do it. Teach them to practice what Christ commanded. What did Christ command? There's a whole list of it up there, isn't there? Love your neighbor as yourself. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Take up the cross and follow me. Welcome the stranger. Feed the hungry. Care for the sick. Visit the prisoner. A new commandment give you, said Jesus said, that you love one another just as I loved you. A church on mission teaches disciples. How did Jesus teach his disciples? He taught them in large groups. Wouldn't you love to be in there as he taught the parables and the stories? He taught them in small groups. The 12, when they came together and they said, what did you mean by that, Lord? What was that all about? And he explained the deeper meaning of his kingdom. He taught them by his example. And he taught them with his powerful words. And he taught them in relationship by being with them day by day. How will we teach disciples? that we are called to instruct. Well, we'll follow the pattern of Jesus. We'll teach in large groups. That's what we're doing right now. We'll teach in small groups. We'll teach by example. And we'll teach through meaningful relationships in the day-to-day -day of life. The goal of our teaching is this, that we would help each other put our faith to work. That we would act out on our beliefs. That we would be disciples, who disciple others. Philip Yancey says this, the success of the early Christian movement which grew to encompass half the Roman Empire was due to this. In the midst of a hostile environment, the Christians simply acted on their beliefs. They treated slaves as human beings during epidemics. They, stepped behind, they, they stayed behind to nurse the sick. They refused to participate in abortion and infanticide, that is, the killing of infants they didn't want. One of their pagan critics had to acknowledge they loved their neighbors as if they were their own family. A church on mission teaches disciples. One last phrase in the text, Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and here's the last phrase, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we make disciples, we do not do it in our own power, but through the power and authority of Christ. And as we make disciples, we do it with this promise, that the presence of the Lord Jesus is with us. As we make disciples, we're not on our own. This is a joint mission. It's through the power and presence of Christ and his Holy Spirit. Behold, says Jesus, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have you got it? I hope you remember. The church on mission makes disciples. I'm going to make you say it. The church on mission, the church on mission,
the church on mission, it's that simple and it's that difficult. God has always had a people. Many a foolish conqueror has made the mistake of thinking that because he forced the church of Jesus Christ out of sight, he had stilled his voice and snuffed out his life. The powerful current of a rushing river is not diminished because it's forced to flow underground. The purest water is the stream that bursts crystal clear into the sunlight after it has forced its way through solid rock. There have been times of affluence and prosperity when the church's message has been nearly diluted into oblivion by those who sought to make it socially attractive, neatly organized, financially profitable. But God has always had a people. These followers of Jesus Christ have been, according to the whim of the times, elevated as sacred leaders and burned as heretics. Yet through it all there marches this powerful army of the meek, God's chosen people, who cannot be bought, flattered, or stilled. On through the ages they march. The church, God's church, listen, child of God, it's alive. Discouraged pastor, it's his church and it's still alive. Lonely missionary, sow the seed with confidence. The church is alive. It's alive, my broken-hearted friend. Busy mother, keep trusting in Jesus. You're not alone. Faithful fathers, there's rest in the Lord. God's church is still alive. Family of God, lift your hands and praise the Lord. The church, God's church triumphant is alive. It's alive and well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we are part of your church, a worldwide community of faith, the wonder of being part of your family. We thank you for our heritage, for men and women who were faithful to their Savior, for those who went before us, who encourage us on. Now may we be faithful to our generation. I pray for us this morning as a local church, may we be faithful to our calling, to our mission. Give us the courage to make disciples, to baptize disciples. Give us the wisdom to teach disciples well. May your Holy Spirit feel free to work among us. May we know your presence. For we pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior and coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.